been in a series called The Art of Reframing that just started last week. And if you missed last week's message, I certainly encourage you to, to pick it up either online at our website. Uh, also, for those of you who are um, iTunes uh, podcasters, you can find us on your podcast as well through iTunes and other forms. Uh, but we've been talking about the art of reframing, and the whole idea is that we would take everyday issues and look at what the Bible has to say about those everyday issues. Because all of us, we have developed a way that we have come to believe about certain things. And we've learned to believe that way because of the house we grew up in, or because of our friends, or because of, uh, of the influence of media and our culture. And we have put together kind of a belief about certain issues. And what we've been calling those is those are like your frame. What you have come to believe, you have composed or constructed into a frame through which you look at those things. And that gives you a perspective. But the question is, is that the way the Bible perceives those things to be? And so the art of reframing is simply taking things that we've already believed, looking what the Bible has to say about those issues, and then comparing them and saying, am I actually believing in a way that is biblical? Because as Christians, we're to have what's called a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview, which means that we create a frame based on the truth of God's word, and then through that frame, we come to believe a certain way about certain things. So we use God's word, not just human wisdom, not just popular opinion, but we actually use God's word to build our faith around these issues. In fact, that's the only thing we have to do that. I was, I was reading this past week in my own time of devotion, ran across Psalm 119, 130, and I love the way this verse talks about that. It says that the revelation of your word or your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. The truth is I never want to stop learning. So to a degree, I am inexperienced in the things of God. I want to keep learning, but his word gives me light and understanding concerning his truth. Because we want to make our decisions about some of these key common issues of life based on what God thinks about those according to God's framework, not ours. In fact, Paul challenges with that in a verse in Romans 12 too that maybe some of you have committed to memory that says that we're not to conform to the pattern of this world. This world has a way that it wants you to live, think, believe, behave. It's got a pattern. And we're not supposed to live according to this pattern, but to be transformed, which means to be changed, and there's a process for how. He says, by the renewing of your mind. Renewing says it's an ongoing process. And how do we renew our minds, right? How do we gain the mind of God? By reading God's word, by knowing what he has to say, by forming our beliefs upon his word. So by the renewing of our minds, then when we're using those methods of looking at things God's way, then we will be able to, it says, to Test and approve what God's will is. I mean, the, the truth is you and I hopefully want to know God's will concerning everyday issues. And the way we're going to do that is not based on what the world has to say, but having our minds transformed by, and renewed according to God's word. So last week, our very first one in the series was about forgiveness, and that was um, a very big issue, because a lot of us, we love and understand God's forgiveness for us to a certain degree, even though a lot of us even have that kind of messed up, but we're not so good at the this way forgiving. 
And our big idea last week basically was that God's forgiveness of sin is limitless, and he calls us to forgive without limits. And if you weren't here last week, again, I encourage you to listen to last week's message because it was a big one in the area of forgiveness. It could be life-changing for many of you in the room who wrestle with that. And for today's, I'm going to introduce it with a riddle. And the riddle is this. With me, you have everything you need. Without me, you will always be in want. What am I? And the what am I is contentment. That with contentment, I will have everything I need. But without contentment, I will always be in want. So contentment we're going to talk about today. And before we jump into today's passage, I just want to kind of bring us back in history to Genesis just for a moment. We won't go there in our Bibles, but many of us know the story. So we have God's creation of the world, and the garden is a beautiful place. In the garden, he puts Adam that he created, and then he puts Eve, the helpmate for Adam, in this beautiful garden of Eden, a place of perfection where there's no sin, there's no death, everything they could possibly need is available to them in this garden of Eden. And how many of us would love that? Because it is a representation of contentment. They are in God's goodness, they're in God's presence, they're in God's place of perfection. Certainly they experienced contentment within that context. Then we see this story where a serpent comes into the garden. Now, we all know the serpent to be Satan, who was an enemy, by the way, of God. And here's how this started for him. He was originally an angel created by God, but he wasn't content to just be under God. He wanted to exalt his throne over God. He wanted to be greater than God. And believe it or not, he actually had a following of other angels that also believed the same. And so they were kicked out of heaven. This is what we understand from various scriptures throughout the Old Testament. And he's the enemy of our souls. And what he wants to do is ruin and destroy anything God has done. And so the serpent comes into the Garden of Eden and tests Adam and Eve. And his assault is against their contentment. You might think, no, it was about fruit. No, listen, it was about their contentment. Because up to this point, they have been fully content. They have everything. There's only one tree. One tree out of countless trees in the garden. One they couldn't eat from. And they had no problem. They were told, if you eat from that tree, what? You're going to die. But the serpent comes, draws attention to the tree, and he accuses God's goodness. And basically is saying, God is withholding something from you. Out of all this beauty he's given you, he's keeping something back. Because if you eat from this tree, you're not going to die. No. You'll be like God. And all of a sudden, their contentment was attacked. And they saw the tree as offering them something more. Something better. And so they look at the tree. Well, we know the account says Eve does, but Adam's right there looks at the tree, sees that it's good, not only for, for what it will do in eating it, but also what it, well, they will gain through it, and they do. And what happens? They don't become like God. They become the polar opposite of like God. They become sinful. And there's a consequence to that sin. They're kicked out of. They lose access to the garden, in buying into the lie that if they would just eat, they would get more, they lost everything. There was once a story told about an ancient Persian named Ali Hafed, and he owned a farm, 
very large farm, a lot of land. And on this land, he had orchards and he had gardens and he had grain fields. He was content and he was rich. Anything he wanted was there within his farm. But one day he had a guest come and visit, and the guest was talking about these things called diamonds. And that if Ali truly wanted to be wealthy, he would have diamonds. Well, that night, Ali didn't go to bed content. He went to bed discontent. Because what he had, while it was plenty, was no longer enough. The next day, he decides to sell his farm, sell all of his land in this pursuit of the diamonds. And he travels worldwide trying to find these diamonds. And he spends his entire wealth and livelihood pursuing after these diamond mines that he never finds. And he ends up dying a broken, destitute, poor man. Meanwhile, the story says that the person who bought the farm from Ali had taken his camel to have a drink at the brook that ran through his property. And when the camel's nose stirred the waters and the silt beneath, something caught the sunlight and created a beautiful demonstration of rainbow colors. And the new owner bends down into the bed of that river and picks up a diamond. And not only one diamond, but that land, that farm, had basically become one of the greatest diamond mines in our world. It was called the Mine of Golconda, and it had mined thousands of diamonds out of there, some of the world's biggest diamonds. You see, had Ali been content to stay at home, he would have found the value of what he had. But in pursuit of these diamonds, he lost everything. So back to Adam and Eve. In this pursuit of more that Satan was offering them, there's more. God's holding back. He's withholding. He has something he's keeping from you. And in that pursuit of more, they lost everything. And the question I have to ask us in this room is, what have you lost in the pursuit of contentment? Some people have lost friends. Some have lost family. Some have lost a lot of money. You've made bad decisions, all in the pursuit of getting something more, something that was better. And that's exactly what Satan contends and what he does in our life. And ever since the Garden of Eden, all of us have been plagued with a severe case of what we'll call the if-onlys. And it goes something like this. Well, I'd be content if only. I had, or if only I were, or if only I weren't, or if only I looked like, or if only I, I hadn't done, or if only I had these things, or if only things were this way, or if I owned, or if I could, and all of a sudden we have if onlys. And the truth is, for a lot of us in the room today, contentment to us is simply just one if only away. That if only then, I will be content. In fact, here's a statement that I would encourage you to try to complete in your own mind today. And it's this, when I have blank, then I will be content. What have you been trying to fill that space, that contentment space in your life with? What is that blank for you? Maybe you've tried a certain career, a certain car, a certain house, a certain position in life. Maybe that's what you're striving for now, or maybe that's what you're hoping for tomorrow. That if only I could find the right thing to fill in that blank, then I would be content. And all of us are wrestling with that. Now, usually we fill that blank with something called money or wealth or status. 
Because that's what we as Americans are all about, right? Pursuing the better. Because there's always somebody out there who's got a little more than you do. And so we think, well, if I had what they had, I would be better. See, back to that Garden of Eden, you know the interesting thing? Is that discontentment has a way for us to look across at somebody else and be mad about what they have that we don't have, and all the while we're ignoring what God has actually given us and the goodness of God. And so we talk about wealth as being the thing if only I had more money, a bigger house, if I had a better retirement, then I would be content. Well, if you could have a conversation with the wealthiest man in the world about contentment, would you have that conversation? I think all of us would say, yeah. If I could sit down and talk to a rich guy about how he's found contentment, I'd listen to what he had to say. Well, the good news is we have a conversation written out for us. Because the richest man of all times worldwide is a man named Solomon. Now, most of us know this name because Solomon is actually the son of King David. He was king of Israel. And you might recall the story that when Solomon became king, God appeared to him one night in a dream and said, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. How many of us would love one of those things? It's like, here, here's a blank check. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon doesn't ask for more money. He doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for peace from his enemies. He asks for wisdom. Because Solomon, as young as and inexperienced as he was as king, he knew that if I don't have wisdom to handle fame, peace, and wealth, then I will lose it all. So he asked for wisdom. And God honored him and gave him wisdom like nobody else has ever had before. And not only that, but God also gave him then wealth, fame, peace. So we have a couple of books where Solomon writes about the wisdom and pleasure and wealth, and he writes about these things for us to understand his perspective and what he's come to discover. And if there's anybody that I'm going to listen to, it's going to be a guy like Solomon, and here's why. If Solomon was alive today, with what he had that we see in the Bible, his net worth would be $2 trillion. $2 trillion. There has not been anybody in history, there's some close competitors that have had a net worth individually of $2 trillion. So this man not only had $2 trillion, in his day, silver was as common as cobblestone. In fact, in Solomon's palace or house, you would find no silver, everything was gold. And he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which would also be slaves, that would be there to serve him. So this man not only had great wealth, he was king, he had fame, and he had countless women at his disposal. Anything a man's heart or a person's heart could desire, he had it. And so if there was ever anybody who would say, I know contentment, it should be Solomon. So what does he have to say? We're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. You probably don't know where that's at. (laughs) It's Ecclesiastes. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah, it's in the Bible. It's not often read, but it is a great book. And this is one of Solomon's writings. And it happened toward the end of his life as he was looking back at what all of his wealth and pleasure and wisdom has accomplished. 
And when you read it, in fact, I encourage you to read it in one setting. I know a lot of your Bible plans kind of break it down for you, but the best way to read Ecclesiastes is as one setting, one book, to take the whole thing in. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some various passages out of Ecclesiastes to see what the man who had the most money ever, the greatest wisdom, and the greatest fame would have to say about contentment. Because if anybody should, it should be him. So Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Boy, isn't that true? Don't we have a way of just consuming ourselves? Every time we have an increase, it's gone. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? In other words, all I can do is see it and it's gone. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. That's the picture of contentment there, by the way. The laborer was the common person who just had a job and had what they needed to eat and survive. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. In other words, they're not at peace. They're not at rest because they're in a pursuit for more. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 7 to 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, which would be very unordinary for a man uh, at this time. Family or people or inheritance was everything. But he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. That's probably why he was all alone, right? Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? In other words, why can't I find contentment in all of this toiling? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So that's what he observes around him. Now, as we go to Ephesians 2, we're going to see what Solomon is saying about himself. He says that I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. In other words, if there's something to be there and try, I have been there and I have tried it. My heart took in the delight of all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Now he's bringing it to a summary. Yet, verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, all the things he had just talked about, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So you see this... this, The sadness that comes where if we focus on our wealth and our possessions, and that's all, then there's a meaningless to it. There's a chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 and 6. And I saw that all toil and all achievement 
spring from one person's envy of another, boy, isn't that so true. We look at what somebody else has. They got more than we have, so we toil, we achieve, trying to make us happy like we assume they are because of what they have. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. That final sentence, he speaks to something that most of us American consumers especially cannot understand. He says this, better one handful with peace than two with toiling and chasing after the wind. Why is it that we're not content with one handful? It's because we have another one of these over here, right? And it cries for more. You ever notice that when you try to pour out of an M&M's bag into the hands of a child, they don't give you just one hand. They give you two because they want more. Better one handful saying, I have enough with peace than two with toil. What is he saying? Here's my summary of what we've seen so far. It's this, that trying to find contentment in pursuing material wealth and pleasure is like chasing after the wind. And you know that, because as soon as you think you arrived there, you got that thing, you did that thing, you thought that would give you pleasure or that would give you what you needed in wealth, as soon as you got there, you were left dissatisfied. You were chasing the wind. Here's a statement I think that you should say to yourself, maybe write it someplace prominent at home. Every time that you feel envy, warring against your contentment, every time you feel a desire for more, sabotage, contentment, then you just tell yourself this. That's chasing after the wind. That's just chasing after the wind. When you see that neighbor drive in with that new car, better, shinier, bigger than your car, just say, that's chasing after the wind. I, got, I have neighbors in my cul-de-sac um, that are business owners, and they're all about living life for themselves. And uh, big projects are happening at their house that's bigger than my house. And every time I see them adding something, doing something, remodeling the backyard, I, just, I have to remind myself, it's like chasing the wind. I'm all for a good project, but what am I trying to find in those things? When I watch them compete with each other about the cars they drive, that's chasing after the wind. All the toys that they have for their pleasure, it's chasing after the wind. Now, it doesn't mean God's against enjoyment. We're going to get there as we continue this study, but here's the thing. If I think that somewhere in those things I find contentment, I'm chasing the wind. It leaves you wanting only this one thing more. That's it. It leaves you wanting more. Talk to any wealthy person who's not a God follower. They will tell you their pursuit of more leaves them wanting more. They have never arrived. They will never be content with what they have. It's chasing after the wind. There's a cemetery in England, and there's a grave marker with this inscription. It says that she died for want of things, and alongside her marker, there was another marker that says he died trying to give them to her. 
And that's the truth. We pursue all of our life pursuing something we will never get if we're trying to purchase it or pleasure our way into it. But Ecclesiastes continues. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes 2, 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. That is contentment. Having their needs covered, eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. I want you to notice where this is coming from. He's not saying wealth comes from the hand of God because there are religions out there or or offshoots of Christianity that will tell you God wants you to be rich. And if you just ask a certain way, he's bound to give you money. The hand of God is not to give you wealth and riches and fame. The hand of God is to give you contentment. For without him, now here's the key thought, without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So Solomon's touching on something. All this stuff I did in my own strength and power was nothing, but I can find enjoyment with him, living within what he has given me. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20. This is what I have observed to be good. So anytime the wealthiest, richest, smartest guy says this is what I found to be good, you want to wake up and pay attention. And this is what he says. It is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. In other words, what he's saying is God has given you a lot. That lot is time, and that lot is your resources. They all come from God. He has given all of us a certain amount. We'll call it a lot. Somebody might have a lot more than your lot, right? But the point is you have been given something. Now look at what he goes on to say. Moreover, that when God gives someone wealth and possessions, so where does your wealth and possession come from? God. When God gives you wealth and possessions, is he against wealth possessions? No. But when he gives them to you and the ability to enjoy them, see, we want the wealth and possession, but God also wants to give you the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, which means my lot may not be your lot, but I'm going to accept my lot and be happy in their work or their toil. This is a gift of God. You know what this tells me? Contentment is never something I'm going to buy. It can only be a gift that comes from knowing God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life, he says, because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. How many want to be occupied with gladness of heart? Most of us, we're, we're occupied with striving for more, striving for more. We're occupied by work and getting more and getting that and doing this. And he's saying, look, if you understand that all you have comes from God, that he's the one that gives you the lot that you have, your wealth, and the pleasure to go with that, he can help you find the enjoyment in what you have, then you'll be occupied not with getting more, but you'll be occupied with gladness heart. Contentment is what he's saying. So here's the summary to these verses. Contentment is living at peace within the means and the moments that God has given you. That is contentment. It is living at peace. That means I'm not warring for more. I'm not striving for more. I'm at peace. I'm at peace within the means. That means my lot. 
and the moments. That means my number of my days. And some of my days are great, and some of my days are not so great. And we've all been there, right? But if I can learn to be at peace in that, within my lot of means and time, that is contentment. Staying at peace with what God has given me. In the Greek, especially as it comes to the New Testament when the Bible talks about contentment, it is this idea, this picture of containment, and what it actually means is self-sufficient, that I have what I need. I'm not looking to any outside source to fill my container because I have what I need. When the Bible speaks in the Greek of contentment, it is as though I have everything. I'm self-sufficient. Now, lest that sound selfish, let me give you some clarity to how Paul uses the word. Okay, In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, he uses the word contentment. He uses this word that often is described as self-sufficient, but he gives it a twist, and I want you to see it with me. Verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's his bottom line verse. In the context in which he shared it, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, some of you have that verse, you know, cross-stitched on a pillow or written out somewhere on a banner. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I love that verse because it is true, but you put it in the context, what is he talking about? He's talking about contentment. That I can be in plenty or in want, and I can learn the secret of being content in those moments with whatever comes my way, good or bad, plenty or want, I can do that because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So his sufficiency is not self-sufficiency. Friends, as followers of Jesus, the sufficiency is Christ. And what Solomon was talking about in the Old Testament and what Paul picks up in the New Testament is that, is that contentment outside of a relationship with God through Christ Jesus will never be possible for you, period will never. But contentment within a relationship of Jesus Christ, his strength within you is fully a possibility. Because my contentment then is not based on anything outside of me. My contentment is here. That idea of container or self-sufficient, it's Christ in us, and he is enough. And that is where contentment comes from. Not trying to find the shinier and the better and the more. It's in recognizing Christ is in me, and I have enough. And this, friends, let me tell you, this wars against our American culture totally. Because we have what's called the pursuit of happiness. And we think that the pursuit of happiness happens on the wheels of stuff and more stuff, and more money, and better than you have money. We're a consumer culture. And so when you look at this passage through the lens of America, we go, yeah, great message, Kelly, but that's a pipe dream. No, it's not. Because Jesus and the truth of God's word is not swayed by our American economy or by our pursuit of happiness. It's true. You want contentment? Then you find it in Christ Jesus. 
That's the point he's trying to make. Contentment can never be bought at a store. You'll never find it. It must be learned from the Lord. Twice in his discussion in Philippians 4, he says this, that I have learned to be content, that I have learned the secret of content. You know what this means? This means it's not something I have naturally within me. We don't wake up or we're not born content. Just ask an infant if they're content. They will tell you pretty quickly they're not because they're wet, they're hungry, or they're just in pain, right? They are never content. There is something within us called selfishness, which wars against any sense of contentment. You're not born with contentment. I've heard folks say, oh, what a contented child. Yeah, because they just ate something. So they feel content, but they won't be, watch, in five minutes. They won't be. Because there's something within us that has to be taught. And that teaching comes from the Lord. And our contentment is not found in stuff outside of us. It's not bought at a store. It is learned from the Lord. And he is the strength that establishes contentment in our hearts. So Paul says it twice to learn. So learning implies we don't come by it naturally. But learning also implies that it requires practice. How many of you have learned how to ride a bicycle? Two of you, awesome. The rest of you, it's a great exercise. It's these two wheels, a frame, and you ride it, and it takes you places. It's very interesting. I did not, I was not born to know how to ride a bike. I got on my first bike that I had, and I fell over. So what happened? I had to learn how to ride a bike. And then the more I learned and practiced how to ride the bike, the more natural it became. How many of you have learned how to play an instrument? You know, maybe it was in band at school. You learned how to play the trombone or the tuba. Bless your heart if you played the tuba. Or, or whatever instrument you learned how to play. You learned it. You, you learned how to read music. It was kind of clunky feeling at first to play it. You made squeaks and noises and odd sounds that shouldn't be coming from an instrument. But eventually, you learned, and through practice, it became more natural for you. What Paul is touching on here is that contentment's not going to come naturally to any of you. You're not born with it. You won't magically somehow find it on your own. The secret of contentment, the learning of contentment comes from Jesus. We get saved, and there are certain things that we begin to discover and learn, that he is my sufficiency, that he really is all that I need. And the more I learn that and then practice that by saying, oh, that's chasing after the wind. I'm not going to upgrade this device. It works great. I know they got the new iPhone out, but this works great. My car, yeah, it's got a little scratch and dent and beat up here, but their car is really nice, but that's just chasing the wind. I'm going to be content right here. When you begin to be able to say that to yourself, it's going to feel clunky at first. It's not going to feel very natural, but through practice, it becomes normal that you say, I'm content with what I have. Because contentment is not discovered in the next moment. It's found right now in the current moment. We think contentment's one purchase away. It's one event away. It's one experience away, especially in our younger generation. Contentment's in that one experience I haven't had yet. No, it's not. Because if you cannot cultivate contentment now, you will never have it later. It's now. Contentment's not discovered in the next moment. In fact, I love the way Paul says it. He says in verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any 
and every situation. I love that preposition because that preposition is everything. He says, I didn't learn how to be content with any situation because how many of you know you've had some situations that are not good? They're not fun. They don't feel right. They don't feel good. And so they're a situation you're in. I don't have to be content with it, but I can be content in it because he is my sufficiency and I can learn that with him, I have everything that I need. Even though Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, he was, he was, he was beaten several times. He wasn't necessarily saying, oh, I'm okay with all that, bring it on. He was saying, I learned how to be content in those moments because Christ is in me, my hope and my strength. That preposition is everything. You're going, Kelly, I don't have much right now, but can you be content in what you have right now? If you can't learn it right now, you will never learn it. Something else will not give it to you because you can't buy it. So what is contentment? It's living at peace within the means and the moments that God has given you. That's contentment, at peace. But we can't, we can't experience that peace because we're always striving, and that's why we have to learn. Your frame about contentment has been, when I get, then I'll be. When I have blank, then I'll be content. And that's been your frame. The problem is that frame has never delivered you contentment. But when you can stop and say, wait a second, Jesus is what I need in my life to truly find contentment. Because apart from God and a relationship with Christ Jesus, I will never be content. I never will. That's why you can be filthy rich, not follow Jesus, and be miserable. But I know folks that are filthy rich, love Jesus, and they are content. Not because of their wealth, and they'll be the first ones to tell you that. I know people who can't rub two pennies together that I've met in Brazil or that I've met in Cambodia who are not rich by any standards. They are incredibly impoverished, but they are content because they have found the contentment that comes from Jesus. It's not because they could buy it. It was there all along. And friends, your contentment is right here within reach all along. It's Jesus. Contentment is living at peace within the means and the moment that God has given me. So back to that first phrase, when I have blank, then I'll be content. Nothing is going to go in that space, friends, and bring you contentment. Solomon told you. Paul tells you. Wealth, women, fame, no. There's no contentment there. What Solomon and Paul will tell you is when you put the Lord Jesus Christ in that space, that when I have Christ as my Savior, then I will be content. This sounds so simplistic, but friends, don't miss the simple truth that he has for his word for us today to reframe the way we think about contentment because you're ruining yourself you're ruining the lives of your family, your kids, relationships, and the pursuit of more. Stop it. When I become content with what God has blessed me with, there's a principle of stewardship. Or when I can find my contentment in him, then no matter how big my lot or how small my lot becomes over life, I'm content. And God will help me enjoy every season that I'm in. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and consider this for a minute. What have you been trying to fill that space with? I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to find it. 
There's a lot of buzz right now about a guy named Kanye West. A lot of buzz about a guy who has millions and millions of dollars and had everything he ever could want. And there's a very strong possibility that he is now a follower of Jesus. Why would he need Jesus? Because what he had was not delivering contentment that he needed for his heart. Time will tell where, how that rolls out for him. I pray for him. I pray for others that are significant figures in our American culture that are making decisions to live for Jesus. I pray for them. But it's evidence, again, friends, you're not going to find contentment in the better album, the better song, the more money. Nope. You can try. You can go down the same path and be totally destroyed. It's not there. So, Lord, examine our hearts. Some of us in this room, we have been chasing after the wind. We think that some magical experience some level of position or status or some amount of money will bring us contentment. And it won't because they were never designed to do that. As the wealthiest man in the world ever has told us that contentment outside of you is chasing the wind. That you are more than enough So help us to reframe our belief around that. To learn the secret of contentment. To learn how to enjoy and be at peace in what you have given us. And how you give us also then the ability to enjoy them. To be occupied with gladness of heart in them. That's contentment. So help us, Lord. Stop comparing, stop envying, stop chasing wind when you have everything that we need. So if you're here this morning, you're saying, Kelly, you know, I've been trying to find contentment in a lot of other things, and they've not delivered. But that's because I've been looking for them outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this morning, maybe you're saying, I I just want to recommit myself to follow Christ, that he indeed would be my contentment. And again, I, I believe God wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy the things that he gives us and blesses us with. But outside of him, you will never have that. Never. But you're saying, Kelly, I believe today I want to commit my life to Christ or I want to rededicate myself to him because I want contentment. I'm tired of losing people, losing stuff, getting frustrated, chasing after the wind. You're saying, Kelly, pray for me. That's me today. Just raise a hand and say, that's me, Kelly. Pray for me today. I want to chase after Jesus and stop chasing the wind. Just raise a hand. I'll be praying with you. Maybe others are saying, I need to learn how to be content with what he has provided. I love Jesus, but I'm still at war with trying to get more. But I'm learning today that he is enough. And I want to learn the secret of contentment. If that's you, just raise a hand and say, that's me, Kelly. I'm, I'm done warring. I'm done striving. Thank you. I'm done fighting for this. Because it's, it's chasing the wind. He is more than enough. So, Father, you know our hearts today.
you know where we are in this. And there are some that will leave this place and they will go chase the wind. And they will continue to be dissatisfied because that wind will never deliver. And I pray that when that day comes, they will remember this message. That outside of you, there will never be contentment. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray you would help us to live within the joy of what you have given. You are more than enough. To be at peace with the means and the moments that you have given us. That's the secret. Help us to reframe our life and belief around that. In Jesus' name.